Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have together to study your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, give us ears to hear, and eyes to see, that we may understand what your word says. And Lord, that you would place conviction on our hearts, that we would apply what your word says. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be covering Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9 today. Um, It goes without question that one of the greatest pleasures that any Christian can enjoy in life is to see the Christians that they're surrounded by or who are maybe under their care, you know, if you're in a pastoral role or an eldership role, uh, strengthening and growing and maturing in their walk with the Lord. Those are blessed experiences for any Christian. When the word of God is proclaimed and you're there to see when that seed penetrates the heart, penetrates the mind, and when you see it starting to bring fruit like conviction and awareness of sin and ultimately repentance, it is truly amazing and truly a beautiful thing to see. I think uh, it would probably be safe to say that every pastor uh, longs for this type of thing on a widespread basis in his congregation, and it's something that we can all join, in hev- uh, join with heaven in rejoicing over. And this is the type of thing that Haggai got to see as a result of his teaching, as we've seen over the course of the past couple weeks. When all the people in Jerusalem had forgotten about God, when all the people in Jerusalem had postponed rebuilding the temple, thereby postponing obedience to God in an effort to appease their neighbors, Haggai was the one whom God sent to speak to them, urging them to consider their ways and to see the root of the sense of dissatisfaction that they all had in their lives. And ultimately, they had this sense of dissatisfaction, this sense of of complete joylessness in life because they had their priorities out of line and had given peace with their neighbors a top priority, and had given prosperity in their community a top priority. Both of these things got a higher place in their hearts and minds than God did. And what happened once they were made aware of their sin? What happened once Haggai brought it to their attention? The governor, the high priest, and the remnant of Israel all repented. They not only changed their minds, but they changed their actions from disobedience to obedience unto God. That's what repentance is. It starts with a changing of the mind, but it always plays out. It always bears fruit in our lives. That's what repentance means. And God's response was to give them assurance of his presence and to stir their hearts, thereby giving them the desire and empowering them to get back to work on the temple and to be obedient unto him once again. And you got to think, if you were in Haggai's shoes, man, what great joy must have filled his heart to see the hand of God moving among his 
friends, his neighbors, his brothers, as something of a revival breaks out and God once again took his rightful place as the top priority in the lives of all who had repented. And if there's one lesson to be learned from the parable of the seed sower, which we touched on last week, if you remember, it's that it's not unusual to see false conversions when the truth of the gospel is preached. It's not unusual to see that the word gets preached and the results are very short-lived. When Jesus told this parable, he realized immediately that his disciples couldn't discern the meaning of the parable of the seed sower. And so he explained to them the first soil which landed uh, the first seed which landed on the on the path, the soil on the path The seed fell, but it couldn't penetrate, and thus it was taken away by birds. That represented the way that Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in a person. And Jesus continued by saying, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Two things ultimately reveal the conditions of the soil. Time and fruit. Time and fruit. Time because some will seem to receive the gospel with joy, with a lot of excitement, but it's nothing more than an emotion for them. And you know what happens with emotions eventually? They don't last. That's why the divorce rate, you know, spikes at two years, because the emotions don't last And if nothing else will do the job, fear and consequences of true saving faith will squash emotions. And fruit, so so, so time is number one. Secondly, fruit, because some will hear the gospel, but before you know it, they realize, oh man, I've I've got other priorities in life. I want to make money. I love money. Oh man, I, I love money. And oh, God wants to be number one, but sorry, God, money's my number one. They'll realize that they have some other priority in life, money or whatever. And they'll realize that the two things are incompatible, faith in God, having him as your top priority, and having something else as your top priority doesn't work. And thus, no fruit will be harvested. And one is bound to see these types of things in a church where the word of God is being faithfully taught and the Lord's work is going forward. We can be sure, friends, that if the devil cannot make you doubt, and if he cannot deceive you, he's doing everything in his power to dissuade you, to demoralize you, to distract you, and to discourage you from following the Lord and making him your top priority in life, loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The devil's doing everything in his power to get you to the point where you compromise on that. And this is exactly what happened when the Israelites returned to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the temple initially. This is why the work stopped and was forgotten for about 16 years. See, it's easy to start a new diet until you crave a donut. 
you start a diet and you're down a few pounds and then you drive by Henry's Donuts. Oh, man. I, I could have just one, right? And it's easy to decide, you know, this is the year that I'm going to get in shape until you get to the end of the driveway and you feel like your lungs are about to explode. It's easy to get married. But it's hard to truly stick it out in richer and in poorer, in sickness and in health, in good times and in hard times. Our passage today will show us how God deals with his children when they're becoming discouraged, when they're becoming distracted in their walk with him. And this is an uplifting message, a message of of great encouragement, and it shows us how God preserves our faith so that we persevere. When he preserves our faith, when it feels like it would just be easier for us to just walk away. So having been stirred by the Lord at the end of chapter 1, which was on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius the king, or of Darius the king, chapter 2 starts just a few weeks later. We pick it up with Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We read, in the seventh month, remember the last chapter ended in the sixth month. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What we see here, reading between the lines kind of, is that Satan didn't waste any time in slinging arrows of discouragement and discontentedness at those who had been stirred to serve the Lord. In between the lines here, we find the reason that the people were becoming discouraged, why the Lord has to address them. This rebuilding of the temple was nowhere near as profoundly glorious as the temple that had once stood on the same ground, but that had been destroyed. The temple that had been built by King Solomon had been absolutely majestic astonishing in its beauty and splendor. Looking at 1 Kings chapter 6, we see that the walls of the temple had been built of solid cedar wood. The inner sanctuary walls had been overlaid by pure gold. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. King Solomon overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high, which were overlaid with gold. You get the idea. This place is amazing. Gold everywhere you look. You can find the full description in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 13. But suffice to say for now, The temple that Solomon built, which had been destroyed and pillaged by Nebuchadnezzar, was nothing short of absolutely glorious and majestic in its appearance. And even though God had stirred the hearts of these people to finish the rebuilding of the temple, many of the older members of the community probably began grumbling 
and voicing a sense of displeasure because they had seen the old temple. And now they're looking at the new temple and they're thinking, this doesn't measure up. This doesn't resemble the building that was destroyed. Imagine taking down the the Space Needle down in Seattle. And in its place, you build a, a maybe a two-story cardboard box. You'd think, wow, that's a, a far cry from the beauty of the Space Needle. And, and you would be right. It's a joke in comparison. And that's exactly how the people felt after about a month, less than a month, of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So the first principle that we can even gather on the surface here from this passage is that God is not only keenly aware of discouragement in his people, but that he cares about their discouragement, and he deals with them in compassion in the midst of their discouragement. Whenever you're doing the Lord's work in any capacity, there's always a sense of expectation that goes along with the excitement of being sure that God has called you and gifted you and led you to a certain way of being used, to a certain ministry. But then when things don't necessarily turn out, looking the way that you thought that they would or should or could, it's very easy, very easy to become discouraged. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that once discouragement sets in, it's very easy. You're just a a short step away from questioning your calling altogether. You thought, you, you thought God had called you and gifted you and led you to serve in whatever capacity. But you thought that if he truly did, the results would be way different. The the present would, would look way different if this was really what he had gifted and called and led you to do. The reality is that God not only produces a harvest in his people, he not only produces fruit, he prunes as well. He prunes as well. He doesn't just care about the work that he calls us to. He also cares about the workers as well. In fact, he cares more about those who are serving him, the workers, their attitudes, their motivations, their devotion to him. He cares more about these things than he does for the work because the work is really just a byproduct and a reflection of those things. We tend to get so caught up on the way things look on the surface. We tend to get so caught up on external appearances that we often forget that it's the heart, the attitude, the internal motivation that God is concerned with first and foremost. Many in our day are complaining that our country no longer looks like the country it once was. And I don't think anybody can really deny that. And you hear people saying, you know, what we need in this country is just a revival. A return to where we, we once were. You know, if, if you're reading the Bible, you know, you read through the book of Acts and you see that one sermon results in thousands of people coming to Christ, coming to faith in Christ. And you read that and you start thinking, well, how can I make that happen? How can I make that happen here and now? 
We don't see thousands of people coming to Christ like they did. Instead, what we do, we read stories and we see the statistics about how thousands of once professing believers are leaving the faith, leaving the church, walking away from Christ. And because the modern church seems to pale in comparison to the church in Acts, we might be tempted to say, the modern church is is nothing compared to what it was then or, or what it used to be. It's so easy to get caught up in comparing the present with the past, however, that it negatively affects the present. Negatively in what way, you might ask? Look at all the churches these days preaching some watered-down version of the gospel, something that doesn't offend, something that doesn't convict. Look at how man-centered the church in our country has become. Why? For for many, the reason that they're preaching such a watered-down gospel is just all in an effort to bring people to Christ without having to take the risk of offending them, because we want them to come back. So we don't want to offend them with the full, uninhibited truth of the gospel. Many are so desperate for unbelievers to come to Christ. There are churches out there, this is a true story, there are churches out there who will canvass their neighborhoods, they'll go around their neighborhoods surveying their unbelieving neighbors, asking them, what would, you, what would bring you into church? What, what would it take? What do you want in a church that would actually get you through the doors? And then they end up using carnal means to draw carnal men. And the gospel never gets preached or planted. When we look at the Great Awakening that happened under George Whitfield, it's amazing. You should read about what happened under George Whitfield sometime. Or if you read about the Protestant Reformation that took place under great leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin, it's easy to become discouraged with what things look like today. It's easy to become discouraged with our own work and our own witness in our own day and age because on the surface, man, it sure doesn't seem to measure up to what it used to be. One preacher added this. He said, quote, Of course, we can also become discouraged by comparing our own situation to that of other churches which seem to be flourishing, but which we believe to be somewhat off-beam in some of their beliefs and practices. Their buildings are packed with people each week. They seem to be able to afford and maintain very modern, well-equipped buildings. They have lots of young people going along to their different meetings and so on, and yet we have a relatively small building in comparison to theirs and plenty of seats that are empty each week, and we can't afford to build and maintain such a suite of modern facilities, and we can become discouraged." End quote. I can relate to that sentiment, and that's something that the Lord dealt firmly with me about three years ago about. And so we see that discouragement can come from all sorts of sources and all sorts of things, but there's an important lesson that we can glean from this passage in Haggai, and that is that we should not ever allow ourselves to be so focused on the past that we miss the new work that God is doing in the present. It's a new work. It's a different work. It's a different age. 
And if God had wanted our work to look exactly like the work of those who came before us, if God wanted it to look now exactly the same way that it used to, don't you think he could do it? He's an all-powerful God. Nothing thwarts his plans. God's essentially telling the people here, look, I know that this temple doesn't measure up. I know that what you're doing doesn't look like the old one. But that doesn't mean I want you to stop working on this one. Friends, the devil knows that one of the best ways to discourage us, to discourage believers, or a body of believers, is with the power of comparison. And he knows, the devil knows that discouragement is one of the best weapons in his arsenal. And so we have to constantly guard our hearts against it. And we must see, we must understand that God is looking at a much bigger picture than you or I have even begun to imagine. Did God know when he stirred the hearts of the people to work on the temple, did he know that it wouldn't look like the old temple? Of course he did. Of course he knew. And so the message for them is the same that he would have for us. Let's continue, verses 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. See the message when we're faced, when we're confronted, or when we're even tempted to feel discouragement, or when we feel the temptation to to walk away or just take an extended break from God's work for whatever reason, the message is the same today as it was for them. Be strong. Stick with it. Persevere. Don't give up. Take courage and stay the course. God's reminding them again that he's with them. He told them that in the first chapter. He's reminding them again that he's he's with them. He hasn't given up on them. They are his people. He is their God. And he will remain faithful to them no matter what the rebuilt temple looks like. Doubt, disappointment, And discouragement, these are all symptoms of a heart that isn't finding ultimate satisfaction in just knowing and being known by God. What did God care more about than the appearance of the temple? He cared about the hearts, the attitudes of the people who were rebuilding it. And so if we're going to compare anything in our day and age, let's not compare results If anything, let's compare attitudes. Let's compare motivations. So rather than wishing, you know, that that in our day and age, the church had the same results that George Whitfield had in his, if anything, maybe we should be wishing that we had his prayer life. Maybe we should be wishing that we had his incredible devotion to God, his heart for the lost, his Christ-likeness. To be honest... 
as we look at this, the, the attitudes of the people were off. They were in sin once again. It wasn't external. They, they were still building the temple, but in their hearts, they had grown in, you know, in, in discontentedness. So it wasn't external yet, but they were tempted to walk away from the reconstruction of the temple to the work that God had called them to do. And if their attitudes were sinful, it was only a matter of time before their actions reflected what was going on in their hearts. See, God knows that our attitudes and our actions are closely tied together, which is why Jesus taught that lusting in the privacy of one's own heart is something that renders you just as guilty as actually going through with the act physically. If it's in your heart, you're just as guilty as if you actually did it. Do you think our attitudes affect our faithful perseverance when things get tough? Yeah, absolutely. And so we have to struggle. We have to guard our hearts and we have to struggle to maintain the attitude of constantly offering our best to God and letting that be good enough. If it's really the best that we have to give, it doesn't matter what the results are. It doesn't matter what it looks like compared with what somebody else did. It's kind of like getting a gift from a child. Maddie, where are you? There she is. You remember a picture that you drew me? You don't know what my favorite picture from you ever is? It's the Toby Mac concert. There was this one time we went to a, a Toby Mac concert together as a family, and a, like a week later, she, she drew a picture of us as a family at the concert, and on top of the stage, it said, Tobe Mac. <laughs> she forgot the why. And Toby Mac was a stick figure, you know, up on the stage. But this picture was absolutely precious to me. I mean, if I had to choose between the Mona Lisa and this picture from, from Maddie, the Tobe Mac picture, I, I would have taken the Tobe Mac picture. You know what would have broken my heart? Is if she would have drawn that picture and looked at it and said, this is, this is horrible, it doesn't measure up to the Mona Lisa. And, and so she rips it to shreds and says, I'm not an artist, I'm, not, I'm just not going to give this to my dad. I do still have that picture saved somewhere, by the way. So too, when we offer our work unto the Lord, we have to understand that our work won't be perfect. But the measure of success isn't anything other than the heart, the attitude with which we offer it. Remember that the next time the person next to you is singing way off key in a worship song, by the way, or if you're the one who can't sing on key, focus, focus on your heart. And if your neighbors are looking at you, remind them, hey, focus on your heart. Giving your best to the Lord. The hope that he builds his people back up with is the promise of his presence, first of all. There are many ways that God will bless his children, but none is more precious or more significant than the promise of being in his presence. But secondly, he assures them that he will be faithful to his promise. This is the second way that he encourages them, that he'll be faithful to his promise, the covenant that he made to the Israelites when he led them out of Egypt. Then we read in Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
See, that's a promise that he first made to the Israelites back in the book of Deuteronomy. But what we see here is that it's a promise that's given through the new covenant as well to the church today. I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So persevere in your faith. Persevere in your obedience unto God. Be strong. Don't fear. Of course, we aren't to be strong on our own strength, in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. But we do that by, first and foremost, keeping our hearts, keeping our attitudes, our motivations in check. Not just doing the right thing because it looks good on the surface. Not just doing the right thing out of a sense of obligation, maybe. But doing the right things for the right reasons. The promise of his presence and his faithfulness to his covenant promises should defeat our discouragement and encourage us to press on and to persist in times when, and it would just be easier to just forget it, when it would be easier to just walk away. As Paul says, if God is with us, who can be against us? So first, God encourages them with the promise of his presence. Secondly, he encourages them with the promise of his his faithfulness. Third, God reminds them of his sovereign purposes. Let's continue, verses 6 to 9. God continues, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Throughout Scripture, we are constantly constantly being reminded that God's sovereign purposes will never be thwarted. We're reminded that his purposes will all be accomplished. Nothing will stand in the way of his purposes being fulfilled. These final verses from this passage are a reminder of the fact that God's purposes are always being worked out. They're always in a state of being worked out and that nothing will defeat or overcome them. He tells the people here that in his sovereignty, he will provide everything that's necessary for the completion of what he desires to accomplish, and that in the end, he will reveal a greater glory, a glory that surpasses even the glory of the temple built by Solomon, which for the people who are there, that that must have just blown their minds. God tells them that the time is coming when he will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, commentators are are pretty vastly divided on what this means exactly, whether it's literal or figurative, whether it's something that has already happened or something that has yet to come. Whether it's literal or figurative, though, one thing that we have to keep in mind whenever we encounter prophecy in Scripture is that it's not there for us to speculate about. 
The future is always going to seem somewhat uncertain from our perspective, and man's desire to know the future is dangerous. Man's desire to know the details of the future can all too easily become something of an idol. As it can be man's attempt to be just as prepared as he can possibly be on his own understanding. If you interpret any prophecy to mean something that doesn't involve trusting more fully in Jesus, I guarantee you, you are misunderstanding whatever that prophecy might be. The purpose of prophecy, the purpose of every prophecy, is to give God's people reason to be comforted. It's not given for us to speculate upon. Speculation about prophecy is is, is great for selling books, uh, as we've seen in recent years, but prophecy is not there for our knowledge of the future as much as it's there for our comfort and assurance. And retrospectively, when you can look back, it's a great witnessing tool. But it's not there for us to know exactly what's going to happen in the future. It's there to show us that God has a plan and that his sovereign purposes will be realized, will be accomplished. So whether this is literal or figurative, we should focus not so much on on those questions, but on why God is telling them that he will shake all of creation to accomplish his purposes. It's his way of reminding them of his sovereign authority over every molecule in existence. It's his way of reminding them of his sovereign authority over every inch of creation. When's this going to happen? It doesn't matter. How is this going to happen? It doesn't matter. I think God could have included all those details if he'd wanted them to truly know. But those aren't the questions that God's trying to answer here. The question that they would have been wrestling with is, is this good enough for God? Is this temple that we're rebuilding, that that doesn't even come close to being as glorious as the old one, is this temple still going to glorify God? And God is saying, yes. Yes, it will, but not because of you. It will glorify me because I am sovereign over it. In verses 7 and 8, we're reminded that God is sovereign over all of creation. God will provide everything, everything that is necessary to accomplish his purposes. The land around the Israelites was in a drought, and there was a famine. And these are perfect conditions for poverty to flourish. And when you're poor, you don't buy enough gold to line a whole building with. The people may have been wondering how they'd ever be able to rebuild a temple that would glorify God, given their lack of resources, given their lack of provision from their perspective. But God says, I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. And this played out in a really interesting way. If you've ever doubted God's ability to provide in a seemingly impossible situation. Consider the situation that the Israelites find themselves in here, and look at what we read in Ezra. 
chapter 6. We'll just look at verses 7 to 11. King Darius makes this declaration, makes this decree. He says, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. We're going to turn your house into a toilet if you break this decree, is what he's saying. And you're going to die, by the way. God promised that he would provide. And not only is God fulfilling his promise through unexpected means, through King Darius, but God is handling any opposition that might come against them through King Darius as well given that it's election year, by the way, I think it would be a good time to be reminded that God is sovereign over all creation, including the government. God would take care of providing. And he'd use a pagan, unbelieving king to do it. All the Israelites had to do was be obedient and continue to be obedient trusting in God. Just trust God, be obedient, and he's going to take care of the results. God is always enough. He doesn't just provide the calling, he provides the means of accomplishing all, all of his sovereign purposes. And all he asks from us is that we would trust him and obey him. To trust him with how it's all going to pan out and to do our work unto him with the right heart, with the right attitude, and to just leave the results in his hands. And let that be enough with the content, confident assurance that nothing, nothing, nothing in all of God's creation will thwart his plans and purposes. Finally, verse 9 tells us, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this latter temple will glorify God. And this latter temple will bring peace. What does that mean? Keep in mind what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew when he was confronted by the Pharisees who were upset that he was doing anything that might be deemed work on the Sabbath. Talk about people who are concerned with appearances. We read this in Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry 
and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how, the, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. What was Jesus referring to that was greater than the temple? Himself. He was referring to himself. Likewise, God's promise of a coming temple that would bring greater glory than even King Solomon's temple. This was a reference to the promise of Christ to come. Of course, we know that Jesus was also referring to himself when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Boy, talk about miscontextualizing a statement, right? The purpose of the temple from the very beginning was never just to be a place that worship, where you could worship God. It was always, always, always designed to be a foreshadowing of Christ. Every aspect, every detail in the temple pointed to Christ. Jesus is the greater temple. And God used the first temple as he would use the second temple to point to Jesus and to the glory and to the peace that only he could bring. See, God doesn't want their hope to be in a building. He doesn't want them to be just idolizing, turning, this, turning their building, their, their temple into an idol. Today, God doesn't want our hope to be in a building either. And real peace has never, ever come through a building. Real peace comes only through being reconciled to God, through faith in the one who is greater than the temple, by putting saving faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 4, Paul builds the case that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And then we get to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace that God's referring to here in Haggai. Jesus himself was the fulfillment of this promise. That promise, this promise has been fulfilled, is fulfilled in him. Our hope of peace is not in a building made by human hands because a building can be torn down, a building can be defaced, a building can be destroyed. Our hope of peace is found in knowing that we have a mediator who stands between a holy God and sinners, between the wrath of God and sinners. A mediator who gives permanent, eternal, unbreakable peace to those who will trust in him. This verse is his way of reminding them that he's coming. And he has come. And he's promised that he will be with us to the end of the age. By the way, where, where did he say that? The Great Commission. What's the Great Commission about? Doing the Lord's work. 
He's promised that he will be with us to the end of the age. And he's promised that he will never leave us, but that he will abide not only with us, but within us. That's why Paul would go on to say to the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the source of real peace. Jesus is our hope, our promise. Our job is to do the Lord's work in our day, right here, right now. No matter how challenging it might seem, and it is challenging, no matter how insignificant our efforts might seem, Yeah, we we might be a, a kind of small church, but we serve a big God for whom nothing, nothing is impossible. And when the devil tempts us to grow discouraged, as he has before and he will again, we must remember that God promises us his presence, he reminds us of his promises unto us, his faithfulness unto us, and he promises that his purposes will be accomplished. And so I urge you today to see the reality of God's sovereign authority in this passage and to be comforted by it. Persevere. Stick it out. Stick with your faith. Maintain a heart of faithful devotion unto God. We work not because that's how we get saved. We work because we are saved. So continue working. Continue being obedient unto the Lord. And by this we can have assurance and comfort and we can protect ourselves from discouragement in knowing that because we bear the fruit of obedience and because we persevere in trusting God, fruit and time, we can be assured that by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal peace with God, a peace that God has promised can never be broken and can never be taken away from us. So may God grant us the grace to persevere in our faith and obedience And may he help us to be like these people in Haggai who, through faith in God and trusting in his promises, overcame the obstacles that Satan attempted to discourage them with as we strive to bring glory to the Lord Jesus in the work that he has called us to, which we fulfill by his power in accordance with his purposes for his glory here in our community today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that you are sovereign over all and that your purposes will not be thwarted. And we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who not only sees when your people are growing discouraged or distracted, but you're a God who cares. And it's encouraging, Lord, to see the way that you comfort your people when we are discouraged or distracted. So we pray, Lord, that you would teach us 
to do your work for the right reasons, with the right heart. And we leave the results in your hands, Lord, knowing that you're sovereign, knowing that your purposes will be accomplished. So teach us to humble ourselves, faithfully and humbly being obedient unto you for your glory. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.